I want to begin by providing another exciting update for us as a church. Some of you may have seen it. We, we put it on our social media platforms earlier in the week, uh, but wanted to, to share it with you on Sunday morning. But we have entered into an exciting new partnership with Buckner Foster Care and Adoption Agency. If you hadn't seen that yet, we actually uh, have uh, been working with Buckner for quite some time. Uh, they've been with us on somewhat of a regular basis over the last few years, uh, hosting trainings and educational events and things like that, typically on Wednesday nights in the pre-COVID era, so that they had an opportunity to engage with Tarrant County families. And in the midst of us working together with them, they talked to us at one point about a desire to open up an office in Tarrant County and that they wanted to continue to work and minister amongst families here in Tarrant County. And so when that conversation came up, I said, well, listen, we've got a wonderful campus here, and a lot of that space goes unused Monday through Friday. And so if you ever are interested in, in making those offices here, just let us know. Well, they were interested, and we've been in months-long's worth of conversation. Uh, the Property and Space Committee has been intricately involved in all this, as well as Kathy Range, John Fisher, and so many others. And just a week or two ago, we made that agreement official. And so uh, Buckner is gonna be officing here on our campus. They're gonna do some, some minor improvements on the third floor, carpet and paint and whatnot, and then they're gonna start operating there uh, at the beginning of January, 2021. We are so excited about that partnership. Uh, in, just in Dallas County over the last couple of years, Buckner impacted more than 200 children uh, in the foster care system by, by placing them with families and helped preside over more than 38 different adoptions. And, and you all know that that's a huge part of who we wanna be as a church. We wanna be a people who love justice, and that includes fighting for the fatherless and, and working for the orphan. And that's something that we've talked about extensively here as a church. And so I, I wanna celebrate that fact because it's not just that we've entered an agreement to share space, right? This is an agreement to continue to pursue the advancement of God's kingdom. And I'm incredibly excited about where it might lead. And so I wanted to share that with you so that you knew some of the things that were going on and to celebrate it together. And as I was thinking through that, it reminded me that it really is difficult to keep you all informed of all the things that God is doing in our midst. It's hard to communicate all those things without a pandemic. It's even that much more difficult with a pandemic. And so I did wanna just take some time and, and highlight some things that have been taking place over the last several months here in the life of our church, just in case you guys were unaware. As, as the school year began, you know, one of the things we've done historically is to provide school supplies to, to children that need a little bit more additional support. We weren't able to do that because of the, the COVID and, and uh, pandemic situation, but we did want to continue to support the realm of education. So we sent uh, gift cards to more than 67 different teachers at two different elementary schools, Daggett Elementary, where a lot of the Morningside Apartments, uh, where we've done some ministry there for many, many years, where those kids go. Uh, at Seminary Hills Park Elementary, another close partners of ours, uh, we, we sent uh, gift cards to support those teachers to help them get the year uh, started out right. We have mentors that are currently working with those students, which is really, really exciting. And, and we want to continue to be a blessing to those communities. And so a lot of the efforts that we put forth with our food distribution target those neighborhoods. And my best guess at this point is that through the course of this pandemic, we've probably delivered more than 600 bags of groceries uh, to those families and helped provide assistance where it is needed. We continue to support the Presbyterian Night Shelter. I, I, we've made literally multiples of thousands of disposable masks to help the Presbyterian Night Shelter. And, and one cool initiative that took place not too long ago, uh, one of our own youth, a junior high girl, uh, had the, the desire to help provide sack lunches to the Presbyterian Night Shelter. So she got some friends and they helped 
coordinate more than 100 stack lunches to go to the Presbyterian Night Shelter. And that was really cool to see that uh, initiative driven by our youth. And God's doing great things in our youth as we've tried to figure out the best ways to connect and, and work there. We have a, a baptism that we're getting ready to celebrate with one of our students here in another week or two. Uh, and, and you think about even not just the youth, the, the children's ministry and the youth coordinated this first family fellowship. Uh, last Wednesday had an opportunity for all of us to gather, which was really great. We've got discipleship groups going on with fifth and sixth graders. We have uh, several young children that have expressed the desire to get baptized. And, and that theme of baptism continues to emerge across the ages. Uh, just a few weeks ago, the college ministry took a retreat, had more than 30 students, I believe, with them, and they got to celebrate a baptism there. They celebrated a baptism uh, yesterday, I believe, in their ministry, and their D groups are flourishing. And uh, we hear some awesome stories, like one student who led a person to Christ through Zoom as the semester began, yes, through Zoom, amen. So don't tell me evangelism can't happen in a pandemic, okay? Uh, and even yesterday, I got a text this morning that one of our students uh, decided to go out and meet some folks after the, the game and led somebody to Christ. And so God is doing some incredible things uh, through all these different age-based ministries and, and really through the life of our church. Through the month of September, we, we've made an emphasis on discipleship groups. This is kind of a, a new initiative that we've really been trying to drive home and establish as a core part of our identity. And it came at such a timely moment because they've become integral for us to maintain connectivity in the midst of this pandemic. And after September, we have about 25 discipleship groups that have been launched, impacting more than 200 people, which is awesome for our church. And we're anticipating here in the near future, adding at least two more to that list that will be recovery specific, right? So folks that are going through uh, different issues, different challenges that just need a place to heal. We're creating safe spaces for those, a, a men's group and a ladies group as well. And so we're seeing those discipleship groups really flourish. And then, and then Sunday morning, Sunday morning has been incredible. Thank you all for being here. Like, I love seeing you. I miss seeing you at home. And, and yet we're still finding ways, be it through D groups or through this service, to find ways to connect and to come in and to, to worship God and sing hallelujah together. Man, that song made me just like want to sway. Was I the only one swaying? I loved that song. And, and it's just so great to be with you all on Sunday morning. And if you, if you kind of look around, it's different from what we experienced pre-COVID. But, but I will tell you that really since about the middle of August, uh, this is about as full as we can be. And we've been full pretty much every week since around the middle of August with, that, with the exception of Labor Day. And, and what I mean by that is, is that we don't feel like we can just keep cramming people in for obvious reasons. And so we've, we've reached a point where we've thought, okay, well, we need to try to continue to make space so that as folks at home decide to maybe make their way back or, or more people continue to visit, we need to create the opportunity for that space to occur. So here's what we're gonna do. Uh, probably in about two weeks, uh, October 25th, we're gonna provide a second service at nine o'clock. And let me give you some details about what that service is gonna look like. It is going to be condensed, which means there might be some elements that we, we may not include because we're gonna try to, to finish it by 10.10. We're gonna keep 10.30 as the main uh, time and, and focal point, primarily I say that because that's the one that'll be streamed. So if you're at home, we're still gonna stream at 10.30. We're not gonna stream both of them. And, and so because that'll be a little bit of a tighter fit, we're gonna try to maybe condense it. Maybe we don't have the children's message or maybe we cut out a song or if you might believe it, I might preach a little shorter. I don't know. That's gonna be a lot harder, but we'll see. And, and so we're gonna to try to provide that space. And so if that appeals to you, maybe you're at home and you've been sitting there thinking, 
we need to get back, but I see it's too full, or maybe there's not a spot, we're creating space. Or, or if that time slot just appeals to you a little bit more, and you'd like to, uh, to come at the nine o'clock, then we want you to know that that's on our plan here in the next couple of weeks. Now, one of the things I will say is that one of the hardest things to do in this pandemic is to anticipate human behavior <laughs> and comfort level. And so we have no idea how many folks that will appeal to. Uh, so we're gonna give it a shot. And, and I'll just tell you that if the demand doesn't justify it and we get like one or two folks that are excited about nine o'clock, we're gonna notify those two folks and say, that's awesome, please still come at 1030. You know, we'll, we'll figure that out. But, but what we're telling you is that we are ready. We have, we have prepared, we've planned, we're, we're ready to create that space. And so if that appeals to you, please make note of that beginning the 25th. But, but all of that, uh, the, the enjoyment of Sunday mornings, the, the fellowship that's taking place on the East Lawn, the discipleship groups, the age-based ministry efforts, the stories of baptisms and the stories of impacting the community. Can I just say, praise God. And, and it's not to stop and, and to try to pat ourselves on the back, though, though you all deserve to be encouraged and, and just appreciated for the way in which you've continued to be faithfully served one another. Um, this is an opportunity for us to just once again see the gospel moves, it flourishes, and we get to be a part. So praise God, right? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do give you praise. Father, for the, the glimpses that we get a chance to see here in our midst of your glory, of the way that you move your church, of the way that you send us into a community and send us to one another to encourage, to affirm, to, to hold each other accountable and to pour into your word. All the ways that we see glimpses of your faithfulness, Father, we give you praise. And so may our hearts never stop singing praise the Lord. May our lives be an endless declaration of our praise to you. So Father, no matter what we may bring into this room in this moment, no matter what burden, no matter what sorrow, no matter what concern or stress, Father, we give you praise. And we come before you now eagerly expectant that once again your spirit will awaken us and lead us to truth, that we will once again forever be changed by your amazing and holy word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, I got a question for you to begin our time together today. What would you say is the best superpower? Right, like if you could have one, but only one, and, and it was your only choice, and you were thought, okay, this is the best superpower to have, which one would it be? I think some of you out there would be sitting there thinking about how cool it would be to fly or to have superhuman strength, which obviously seem like two really great superpowers, but you'd be wrong. They would not be the best. Because I've decided to definitively declare for all of us that the best superpower, without a doubt, has to be teleportation. Can I get an amen? Yes, thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Teleportation would be amazing because you could just be anywhere in the world in an instant, right? Snap of a finger, you're there. And I've decided that the reason this would be the best superpower is because it would fundamentally end the need to pack ever again. I hate packing, right? The loading, the unloading of the car, the living out of the suitcase drives me crazy and I can't stand it. Because here's the thing, every time you go into packing situations. It, it's like you're trying to, to toe that line between the overpack situation where you bring way more than what you need or the underpacking and you get to your destination and you don't have stuff that you need. So every time we go on a trip, I try to really work hard towards that perfect packing experience, taking just as much as you need. But that's difficult, right? Because you start thinking through the number of days that you're going to be gone and you add it up there and you start thinking about 
clothes that you need for that amount of time. But then you got to look at your agenda and think, okay, well, do we have any special occasions or occurrences that might require another outfit or more clothes to take? And then you throw in weather. Weather really complicates things. What if it gets cold? Am I going to need a jacket? And then before you know it, man, you're just, you're out of control and you're bringing everything. And it just drives me nuts. And so probably the most difficult packing experience that I can think back on, at least recently, came from about a year ago, almost two years ago now, actually, when my family and I, we all went to China in January of 2019 to adopt our youngest son, David Wu, which was such an incredible trip. But, but we had two, dis- two different destinations. We were going to a cold weather climate. We were going to a warm weather climate. We had to pack for all of ourselves. We had to pack for a young child that we didn't even know and that we were going to have to bring stuff back. It was very difficult. So let me tell you, let me just show you what it looked like. We got a picture, I believe. That's what it looked like, okay? Imagine getting all those bags and a family of four and family of five on the way back through all those airports. Listen, it was a great trip. That was a beatdown. It was incredibly difficult, and, and yet we did our best. So imagine taking a trip like that, or any trip really, but a trip of that significance, and someone telling you, don't take a thing. Now, one extra shirt, no extra shoes, no extra money, don't take a thing. How would you respond to that? I think, I think all of us would instinctively think, well, it's not only impossible, that's crazy, right? Like, of course I'm going to take something with me. Of course I'm going to take more along this journey. And so what does that say about us? That such a suggestion sounds so crazy and sounds so impossible. Maybe it doesn't say anything. Maybe it is common sense that we should take these sorts of things, but maybe it says quite a bit about our understanding of what sufficiency is, what security is, what needs are. Maybe it says quite a bit about us. And that's really kind of what I believe this passage is gonna force us to question today. What does it mean if our lives live out of a surplus of things, right? And it's driven by that surplus of, of stuff versus a life that is driven from a surplus of the gospel. And how do those two things compare to one another? That's the question that we're going to seek to wrestle today. So grab your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, please let us know. We will make sure to get one to you. Matthew chapter 10, a series that we started last week. And and as I mentioned to you last week, we take the months of October and November to really focus and emphasize our attention towards the community and to the world. And so last week's message kind of used the prayer of UBC as a guide as we introduced this particular passage, right? What's the prayer of UBC, right? That God's power would be unleashed in our lives, in our church, our community, in our world, so that every tongue, tribe, and nation can come to know and proclaim the saving work of Jesus Christ. That's what we're praying towards. And so we, we come to Matthew chapter 10, which is Jesus sending out the twelve. He's literally sending them out into the community, and it's a great uh, reminder that he has given them power. He's given them authority. That's what it tells us at the very opening part of this chapter. And this authority is going to manifest itself with healings and casting out demons and all these incredible things. But but Jesus also gives very specific instructions. He focuses their efforts. He says, don't go to everyone. Just focus on the lost sheep of Israel, which gave us a reminder that God does want us to focus our efforts. That a lot of times when we go out into the world and we invest in others, it's about doing more with few people rather than trying to do less with a lot of people. There's also a a sense of trusting in God's timing, 
right? Understanding that he, he will bring these things to fruition according to his timing and his plan and us trusting that, that what our responsibility is is to faithfully proclaim the message, right? That the kingdom of heaven is near. And we proclaim that by the way that we meet the needs of others in this mindset this, this transitional statement you see there in verse 8, freely you've received, now freely you give. And we begin to think through, what would it look like to see that power unleashed in our lives? And that was the introduction. So, so now we're going to pick it up. We're going to use chapter 10 to guide us through the months of October and November as we consider how we engage the community in the world. We're going to look at verses 9 and 10 today, but I want to read it in the context with it, within which it's been offered. So we're going to start in verse 5. So follow along with me. These 12, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Here's our verses for the day. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. This, to me, is arguably one of the most thought-provoking teachings in all the Gospels. It's probably not the most, but it's, it's definitely at the top. And, and it comes with such a challenging, uh, I guess, truth that, that we have to wrestle with, and obviously disciples wrestled with as well. And so I want us to make sure we understand essentially what Jesus has just said to his disciples and, and understand it in the context within, it, within which it's been said, and then we'll evaluate the implications for our lives today. So, so the driving verb here, the driving instruction is do not get. Okay, that's, that's the, the statement. And then he gives that long list. And if you compare this to uh, Mark's gospel and other gospels where Jesus sends out the 12, you can see a slight difference in tone like Mark Mark kind of gives a list of things that you are allowed to take and a list that you aren't allowed to take, whereas it seems almost as if uh, Matthew's is almost a strict prohibition. But when you compare the two texts and you understand this particular word, what it actually means is don't procure, right? So I think what we can see is that Matthew understands there are some basic things you already have, which is what would be established in Mark's gospel, that, that you probably already have sandals, you already have Clothes. So it's not you, you forget all these things, but what he's saying is, is that what you have is enough. You don't need to go procure. You don't need to go purchase. You don't need to go acquire anything else. And so that becomes the driving message of these instructions, which should not come as a surprise because this is a consistent biblical truth, is it not? Right? You, you go back even to the Old Testament. God is constantly trying to remind his people to trust in his sufficiency, to trust in his daily provision. You think about them bringing up the people up out of Egypt and they're, they're wandering in the wilderness. And right when it gets critical to that point where they begin to question God's uh, ability to provide for them and, and that they're beginning to get hungry and thirsty and concerned about all those things, saying it would have been better for us to die in Egypt, God begins to meet their needs with manna from heaven, right? And so, so put yourself in their shoes. Imagine literally being in the wilderness, in the desert, and, and you're, you're worried about your kids, you're worried about yourself, and all of a sudden this miraculous provision emerges. What would your impulse be to gather as much as possible, to procure for yourself, to store up so that you could have as much as you could possibly need for as long as you could possibly have it? But what does God tell them to do? Only gather enough for one day. Imagine how difficult that would be. 
And so God, from the very beginning, was saying, trust me. And so the families and the people that gathered more than they needed, what'd they find? The next day, it had, it had rotted, it had molded, it wasn't good. So they had to learn in a daily trust of God's provision and sufficiency. This is a common teaching. And what I believe is actually happening here in Matthew 10 is Jesus is putting into practice or, or forcing his disciples to put into practice what he's already taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Right? If, you, if you remember last week, we kind of recapped what has taken place in the first nine chapters leading up to chapter 10. And, and at the center of the first part of this gospel is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus teaches on a number of different things, a number of different issues. And one of the things that he gives great attention to is money and, and how we store up for ourselves certain treasures. I want us to hear it, okay, because I think this is fundamental to understanding chapter 10. So if you want, you can flip to the left. We're going to go to chapter 6. And we're going to read this teaching that I believe Jesus is now asking his disciples to practice. Chapter 6, verse 19 says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, and if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? You do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is there today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I can't help but imagine that if Jesus says, don't take anything with you, don't go get any additional stuff that when the disciples stop and go, well, wait a second, we gotta have an extra shirt, we gotta have a change of clothes, we gotta have some extra money. He points back to this. You don't need to worry about what you are gonna wear. You don't need to worry about what you're gonna eat, what you're gonna drink. Seek my kingdom first. So fundamentally, between Matthew 6 and Matthew 10, if we were to summarize that the teaching that Jesus is pressing upon his disciples is don't store up, don't procure. You can't serve both God and money. Put my kingdom first. What a challenging text. Very thought-provoking, at least, right? And, and I think part of the reason he's saying this, let me say this before we get to the implications. I think one of the reasons he's saying this is because of the power that he's just entrusted to them, right? He's literally given them authority to drive out demons and cast out in spirits and to heal diseases. You think people wouldn't pay for that? So part of what he's saying is the gospel's not for sale. Freely you have received, freely you give, right? This is not an opportunity for you to, 
to manipulate and abuse this power for your own personal gain. Lord knows that through the countless generations of history, people have stood on stages like this one and spoken to crowds like you all and have abused that authority for their own personal financial gain. So that's the other thing I think he's doing is he's trying to put a check into this, this power and this authority that he's given to him. But, but the implications of this text for you and me, I think, are, are much more far-reaching, right? Fundamentally, I think the greatest implication for us is that clearly Jesus is challenging us in a life that is going to find a surplus of things versus a surplus of the gospel, right? That he's challenging a life of luxury and excess rather than a life that would be sufficiently trusting in the gospel and in his provision, right? That's what, and it's almost as if he knows that's what we need because he knows the human heart. He knows what can happen with a life of luxury and excess. And the reason this becomes a very difficult teaching for us to embrace is because we are so good at rationalizing it away, right? I mean, we've got so many, there's a lot of ways that we can rationalize it. Let me share with you some that I've used, which by the way, as I begin to teach on this, this is not one where I'm like, hey, listen up, y'all, we gotta figure, like this is one of the hardest things for me to figure out how to practice in my own life. So I'm sitting right there with you today trying to figure this out. Here's what I've seen in my own life and in in the conversations I've had with others throughout uh, the last several years is that one of the ways we rationalize this is that when we begin to have monetary, financial success in any capacity, one of the conclusions we can draw is the more money I can make, the more money I can give. And so this is a good thing. I can can embrace this luxury. I can embrace this excess because I'm gonna have the ability to impact that many more people and give that much more away. And that's a great idea. And for some people it works, but for the majority it does not, right? Research has actually tested this out. Uh, Back in 2012, an organization that that oversees, I think it was the Chronicle of Philanthropic Giving, uh, did a a survey of research and they they looked at the uh, tax returns from the IRS for, for different socioeconomic levels across the US, like every state, every zip code across the US. And and what they found was they were trying to evaluate charitable giving. And what they found is that as the income level increased, the percentage of charitable giving went down, right? So so those individuals or households that made 50 to $75,000 a year typically gave around 7.6% towards charitable giving. Once it got to 100,000, it went down to around 4%. And the more insulated the, the wealthy became, right, zip codes that had folks that made more than 40% of, of the neighborhood that made $200,000 or more, the, the uh, charitable giving went down to 2%. So it went from seven to four to two as wealth increased. And so I think maybe the motives are there. And like I said, it's not I'm gonna apply to everybody, but by and large, typically, the more that we make, a lot of times the generosity actually diminishes, it doesn't increase. Now, we can fool ourselves into thinking that we're giving more because we'll look at numbers rather than percentages, right? And so the amount that we've given has increased, but the percentage of what we've been entrusted with has decreased. It's the Oprah effect. That's what I call it, at least, right? Like, like people always loved Oprah's generosity. Her favorite thing is like, you get a car and you get a car and you get a car. And they're like, she's the most generous person in the world. I'm like, no, she's still got like billions of dollars. Car company probably paid her to, to give those away, right? I mean, it's just one of those things that we can look at the, the number or the amount, but in reality, the percentage goes down. And so what happens is we'll still protect this life of luxury and this excess for ourselves and fool ourselves into thinking we're more generous, when in reality, we're not. 
And the reason that might happen is because money actually influences our behavior. It influences our mindset. Uh, another study that was done in 2013 by a professor at Berkeley, and, and this came uh, or gains a lot of traction in a lot of different outlets and, and research when it was done, was how wealth really diminished your ability to have sensitivity to the needs of others. That, that the, the wealthier you became, the more uh, driven by, by money and some of those things, a lot of times you found yourself uh, seeking more of your own entitlement and your own self-interest. Right, that it was kind of the self-interest maximum, that you kept kind of thinking that more of the rules were applicable just for you or that, that even unethical behavior was more susceptible uh, the more successful and the wealthier people became because they felt like, well, I'm entitled to more. My success proves my influence. My success proves that this doesn't apply to me and unethical behavior actually increased. Uh, one of the things that reminded me of that recently is I watched this documentary called The Social Dilemma. I don't know if you guys have seen that. Highly recommend it especially this time of year as you're trying to figure out information and what to trust. But anyway, it's, it's this documentary that covers kind of the, the tech giants that exist, right? These wealthy, wealthy giants like Google and Facebook and all those different groups. And, and it's looking at their business model and it's showing us how, how destructive a lot of these things have been to our society. They've been destructive to us as individuals. They've been destructive to our children. It's, it's really literally pulling apart the fabric of democracy in a lot of different ways. And I'm watching this and, I, and I'm looking at all this stuff and I'm thinking, man, how is this possible? Right? Like, how are people not, you know, in these positions with some sort of mindset towards civic duty or responsibility or even like a moral compass that says, no, we shouldn't do that. That's not, that's not good for people. And the answer is simple, money. People are, are, are paying millions upon millions of dollars to these tech giants of advertising. Why? So they can make more money. And these tech giants, they don't care about regulations or anything like that. Why? Money. What could lead somebody to a point where they would actually objectify another human being to sell them into trafficking? Money. Man, it is the root of all kinds of evil. And Jesus knows it. Right? What, he, what he knows is that to give into a life of luxury and excess and to fail to trust in the sufficiency of him is going to actually diminish your love for the neighbor, not increase it. Right? You're going to have less sensitivity to their needs, less opportunity to potentially actually give. And so he kits it off from the beginning. Don't procure, don't store. And by the way, this is not just a word for individuals. This is a word for churches. I mean, let's not forget that the 12 represent an early formation of the body of Christ. And so the last thing we need is to create churches that are driven by luxury and excess. Churches that become so inwardly focused about buildings they can make and amenities that they can provide for themselves that that becomes their one driving force. When we do that, we cease being a church and become a country club. Because what we're, what we're contributing to is just something that fulfills our own wants and our own needs. And so I, I've shared this with you before. Listen, when we're asking for all of us to, to sacrificially give and all those things, the direction we are going as a church is to make sure that what we are pursuing and the vision that's guiding us to is to impact the community and, and to serve the needs of others. And I'll be the first to tell you, we're not there yet. We're not as, as, as far along in that process as I want us to be, but that's the direction we're going. 
And so we have to hold ourselves accountable as the body of Christ. We have to guard against the life of luxury and excess. Now, another reason this becomes so difficult is because when you use words like luxury and excess, it's all subjective, isn't it? And everyone has a different definition, and this is another way that we rationalize it. We just play the comparison game, because guess what? You can always find somebody that lives a lifestyle that is more luxurious or more excessive than your own. Always. Unless you're Bezos. Right? And so you just have to find that person. Well, you see, I mean, we're not that bad. Look at what they do. Look at what they have. We're doing pretty good. Problem is, is that works the other direction, too. You can almost always find somebody that's living with less luxury and less excessiveness. So, so part of what Jesus is challenging us to, to ask ourselves is what are your basic needs? What, what is sufficiency for you? And we all probably define that in very different ways. Here's the good news. Others have actually defined it for us. Did you know that? You know about the International Labor Organization? So, so they work around the world, part of, part of the UN or, or works in conjunction with the UN, I'm not exactly sure of the relationship, but they, their, their job is to go and evaluate in different cultures, different countries, and determine what is needed for basic survival. And the reason this, this organization exists is that it helps establish poverty lines, right? So that then you can know how do we bring people up out of poverty? What do they need to survive here? And so their list includes what you would think it would mean, right? Food, shelter, clothing, a lot of times today, they're going to factor in education, healthcare, and a few other things, and they determine, Here's, here are your basic level of needs in this country. You know what it is for the U.S.? If you're single, it's $12,000 a year. That's your basic level of needs. Couple, I believe it's around 16, 17, family of four, around 24, 26. So there's, there's your answer from a cultural perspective. Anything above that, I think there's a justifiable statement to say, we're living in luxury and excess. Now, am I saying you need to quit your job and just try to live on $12,000 a year? No, I'm not saying that. And I don't think Jesus is saying that either. But it is about our mindset, about understanding what you've been entrusted with and what sufficiency really is. Let me, let me tap into this. Uh, Dr. Arthur Brooks uh, did this study on happiness not too long ago. He's a Harvard professor. And he surveyed all these folks from different socioeconomic income levels, uh, from, the, from the wealthy to the poor, and he asked them, how much more money would you need to be happy? And across the board, you know what the main answer was? Around 40%. Didn't matter how wealthy you were, didn't matter how poor you were, people always wanted more. That's what Jesus is challenging. To think to yourself, I just, I just need a little bit more, to be a little bit more secure, a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more whatever. Let me procure, let me store. And Jesus says, stop. That's not the way of the gospel. That's the mindset that has to change. Money is not inherently evil by any means. The love of money is what can lead us astray. So that's the question we all have to ask ourselves, what do you love? Now, I know how you'll answer it Sunday morning. How do you live? If your life is driven by procuring and storing, maintaining a status, maintaining a lifestyle more than it is a pursuit of the kingdom, then we've got to change it. We have to loosen that grip. Now, the other reason 
this becomes problematic in our culture. And this to me is one of the greatest elements of verse 10. I love this. Is where it is actually leading the disciples. Okay, and there's a shift, and this is what makes it difficult for us in our country, because what does Jesus know when he gives them these instructions? What he knows is that their needs are gonna be cared for. What does he say? For the worker is worth his keep. What does that mean? Well, the word keep actually means food. And so other translations use that word. And in fact, I think if you looked at the ESV, it would say the laborer is worth his food. What Jesus knows is that in this culture, at this point in time, people are gonna take them in. The level of hospitality that existed in this culture in this time is vastly different than our own. What he knows he's sending them into, it's the homes. People are gonna open the door, invite them in, and give them food, right? It, when we think about giving to others, that's part of it. Jesus expects people to give to the kingdom. He expects them to, to offer hospitality, and so he knows he's sending his disciples into that sort of context. One of the reasons you and I struggle with this so much is because that's not our world. We live in a world that champions self-sufficiency, right? Don't, don't rely on others. Don't ask for a handout. Don't do those sorts of things. You must be self-sufficient. That's the mantra that is embedded into our brains, and it breaks down community, right? It, it, it challenges hospitality. It challenges the ability to, to love and rely upon the neighbor, the very thing we're called to go do. Jesus knows that it's possible there. Hospitality has really taken a hit in our culture, right? We, we, we uh, can find numerous research statistics that will tell us that, what, the majority of Americans now eat alone a lot of time, like 20% of meals are eaten in cars. I think it's 387 meals a year that we eat on our own. We, we just are increasingly isolated and self-sufficient, right? We're retreating from the neighbor rather than pressing into it. And so this idea of hospitality and this sense of warmth is, is very difficult for our culture to conceive. I'll never forget one time that I was totally convicted by this. So uh, there was a, a season where I was consistently going to the Times Square apartments that I mentioned earlier. We had done some VBSs there and I was following up with the community and the neighbors. And it's a highly international uh, demographic in, the, in that apartment complex. A lot of refugees that were there, which is part of why we were drawn to it. And I met one individual who was a refugee from Afghanistan. And we built a, a little bit of a relationship. And I'll never forget one time I, I was going back to visit him and I had another uh, couple of friends with me, Crawford Johnson, for those of you that know Crawford, and then a good friend of mine named Randy. And we were just coming by to check in on him. And he, uh, of course, invited us into his home. Small little apartment. He's Middle Eastern culture, so there's no furniture. And he's like having us sit on the ground and his wife's bringing us food and drinks. And he's just talking. We're just having a great conversation, talking about life and faith. And after we'd been there about 20 or 30 minutes, uh, it starts raining outside and it's about 2.30 and he goes, oh, excuse me, I need to go get my oldest child from school. You wait right here. And he got up and he left. So I want you to picture that for a moment. Three men he barely knew sitting in his apartment with his wife and a newborn and a toddler and he just left us there. How many of you would do that? Right? All three of us were like, oh my gosh. <laughs> but the spirit of hospitality and neighborliness was so different for that culture than it was for ours. Seems so foreign to us, and I understand why, but the point is, is that that's one of the challenges that you and I face when we start wrestling with this is because we don't live in an environment, in a culture where we rely upon the community. 
where we, where we provide for the community. Put yourself in this village's shoes, right? All of a sudden, a disciple knocks on your door to give you a message of hope. Do you invite them in? Listen, people knock on my door right now, and I, I question if I should answer it because I'm not interested in buying new energy plans or windows or whatever it is they're selling. And sometimes I open it like I crack the door, right? This is kind of how we live. How many of us would say, come in? Let me give you a meal. What Jesus is doing, I love this. What he is doing is he is shifting the arena where the gospel flourishes. The gospel doesn't flourish in the streets or in the halls of a synagogue, but around a dinner table. And I love that. Invite people in. Go into those intimate spaces. Those dinner tables, that's where relationships flourish. That's where something beautiful happens. That's where you find not the surplus of things, but the surplus of the gospel. I came across this great, great quote that I wanna close this with that I think really kinda encapsulates the spirit of what we're pressing into, right? When, when Jesus sends us out, it's not just that we would hope to be invited in by others, but that when you and I live our lives we invite others in as well, right? That we loosen our grip on these earthly things so that we can truly begin to find that arena, that, that place where relationships flourish. And that means inviting people into our homes and, and focusing in on what happens when we share a meal together, when we share community with one another and we truly embrace the idea of neighborliness. Did you know that according to a study in, out of Oxford University, that almost 70% of people have never shared a meal with their neighbors? That's what's gotta change. The arena has to shift off of social media platforms and people shouting at each other and around a dinner table. Because here's what happens. This is coming from Devin White. She, she writes this blog, and it's not a faith-based blog, but I love the way she wrote about the impact of hospitality. She says, bottom line, hospitality in its most basic form can be simplified down to two main ideas, generosity and kindness. When you provide excellent hospitality for those in your life, you're giving them permission to bring whatever they carry with them into your space and to be shared. You're inviting them to let their guard down and make themselves at home. When you allow someone to be completely comfortable in your space, not only are you building immeasurable trust, but you're sending them the message that they can be wholly and completely themselves. Hospitality matters because it deepens existing relationships and creates the space for new ones to flourish. Hospitality matters because it feeds the most basic human need that we all have, which is to feel loved and accepted. That is not something to overlook. There is a surplus of beauty in providing space for others to feel important, cared for, and genuinely loved. That's what we're after. That's what I believe Jesus is teaching. What would it look like if we all loosened our grip on a life that is constantly driven by the surplus of things to procure and to store, but rather clung so tightly to the surplus of beauty of moving into those intimate spaces to make sure that people feel loved, they feel cared for, and they feel at home. That's the life that we wanna live. We can't serve one and have the other, so we must evaluate our own hearts and our souls and rush into this gospel to find that surplus of beauty so that he can once again flourish. And what we will discover is that God's sufficiency 
is always faithful. Let us not be found at the end of our lives clinging so tightly to this world that we miss the joy that the world that is to come has to offer. Let us trust that our God truly is ever almighty to save and to meet our every need. And let us share that same truth with all those who come into our homes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we are grateful. Father, we even just confess the the impulse that we often have to, to procure and to store. God, we know that there is a necessity for some of those things, but in those arenas, Father, where it has gotten out of control for us and we have served the procuring and the storing of things rather than seeking your kingdom, Father, I pray that you would help us to repent, that you would help us to truly imagine and envision what it would look like to fully run after you. And so, Father, we ask that you would come in and once again show us the sufficiency of your grace, the beauty of this kingdom. And Father, make us a people that loves to convene in the most intimate spaces, to meet people in a way that helps us to know them more fully, to make sure that they are fully loved by sharing this hope and sharing this gospel. God, give us those opportunities and help us once again do all that we can to pursue your kingdom first. We pray this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. And amen.